Hello and welcome to the Expert Factor. Fiscal events don't half come round quickly these days, don't they? The last one, you'll probably remember, Jeremy Hunt unveiled his autumn statement. That was only a few months ago and now we've got the next one, the 2024 Spring Budget. That's coming up in less than a week. So what is Jeremy Hunt going to do this time? Has the fiscal situation improved or has it worsened over the last few months? Are tax cuts plausible? And will this be the last fiscal event before the general election? I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK Interchanging Europe. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. And this is The Expert Factor. Now, Paul, I'm sure you've got answers to all those questions that I've just posed, so I'm going to start with Hannah. <laughs> Thanks, Anand. Isn't it a bit ridiculous we're having yet another fiscal event, given we had an autumn statement only three months ago? Yes. And I mean, given the circumstances of COVID and so on, a lot of fiscal events, as they call them in the jargon, in recent years. And we strongly think, and I hazard a guess that Paul would agree with us on this, that having Bold. having fiscal events at least twice a year, which is what we tend to have now with a budget and an autumn statement, at least if there's not some crisis causing the need for additional adjustments in the middle of the year, is really counterproductive in policy terms. It means that you have a chancellor looking around for all the latest wheezes, uh, tinkering with uh, the, the tax system in a way which ends up being really unhelpful. And it's understandable from a political point of view. It gives the chancellor mm -hmm. their moment in the sun. And what chancellor would not want two moments in the sun to be addressing parliament and, and endless speculation about what it is they're going to do in the media and so on? You can see the political incentive to want to do that more than once mm. a year. From a good government point of view, from a continuity of policymaking point of view, and to create a stable environment for people who are trying to do things like plan businesses, planning what their tax burden is going to be, and so on, it would be far better to do this once a year and do it properly. I do wonder, and this is a rhetorical question, so you don't have to answer this, obviously, whether the general public feels reassured by the fact that the government seems to be doing loads. It'd be interesting to know, I mean, write into us if you know the answer, whether the public sees it as important that the government seems to be trying to address fiscal problems by having lots of these fiscal events. So good government might work against popular government in that sense. But that's just me talking nonsense. Paul, <laughs> now turning to you nonsense. to not talk nonsense. <laughs> has anything changed in the last few months that would justify having this budget now? So, I mean, can you just sort of talk us through the, the main economic indicators and what might have changed? There hasn't been a lot of time for things to change, of course. But that said, we do know a few new things. Inflation is lower than we expected back in November. It's down at 4%. It's come down quicker than the Bank of England or the OBR <laughs> were expecting at that time. Interest rate expectations, this really matters for the Chancellor, are lower into the mm -hmm. future. So uh, for reasons we may come on to, it really matters to him how much he expects to be spending on debt interest in four or five years' time. And the Office of Budget Responsibility will be saying that he's going to be spending less of that because of the lower inflation and the expectations interest rates will be lower. I'd be amazed if he was spending it in four years' time, but anyway. <laughs> he's going to pretend, and this is something we'll come on to, he's going to pretend in the budget that he's going to be making the spending decisions mm -hmm. in four years' time. He's going to pretend that he's setting the total spending envelope as well. But, the, of course, the big news, in, or the sort of big news, has been that we're now know that we were technically in a recession in the second half of last year in the sense that the economy shrank, according to the latest figures at least, two quarters in a row. Now, we shouldn't make too much of that. I mean, the, the numbers are very small and they'll probably be revised again. 
But what we do know is that the thing that really matters, which is national income per person, has been falling now for a couple of years. And that, see, that really is a recessionary period. I mean, we really have been all getting worse off or on getting worse off on average since 2022. So the size of the economy, essentially, it's been stagnant. But of course, the population has been growing. Stagnant economy, population growing, that's less economy per person. So in terms of Rishi Sunak's pledges, one going better than he expected, one not so good? Well, he's made, uh, he made a few pledges. One was to get inflation halved by the end of last year. That happened. Absolutely nothing to do with him. I mean, other than he didn't do anything really stupid. But I mean, essentially, that was down to the Bank of England and external factors. But of course, he also said he was going to get the economy growing, mm-hmm. and it hasn't been. Um, now, he didn't actually put a timescale on that, and I'm sure the economy will grow eventually, but the economy wasn't um, growing. He also said, of course, he was going to get the debt down and spend more on public services, and the debt, I'm afraid, is growing. So one out of three, and that's the one he's got least control over, is not a great record. Yeah, and actually, this brings us to this knotty question of fiscal rules. Now, obviously, Hannah and I know perfectly well what a fiscal rule is. Can you explain it to our listeners, Paul? Well, a fiscal rule is something made up by chancellors, and there's been a whole lot of them over the last 20 years which provides a constraint on the amount of borrowing or debt that government can have. Now, there have been a lot of different ones. Right now, the key one, the one that is really constraining government, is actually a rather odd one. And it says that debt should be falling between the fourth and fifth year of the forecast period. That means that debt's falling, but in that particular year, four or five years out. Now, you would meet that rule even if debt was rocketing up for the first four years and then coming down a little in the fifth year. So that's how daft it is. As it happens, actually, debt is rising over the next two or three years, but it is forecast to just about by the tiniest of slim wafers. It is just about forecast to come down in that fifth year. So technically, on the sort of numbers that the Chancellor has penciled in, we are just about meeting that rule. Now, it's a silly rule. Mm -hmm. It does matter what happens to debt over the medium run. We don't want debt ratcheting up all of the time. But measuring the difference between debt in the fourth year and debt in the fifth year and using that as a fiscal rule isn't terribly sensible. Now, why do we have fiscal rules is a kind of interesting question. I think if you had a sort of sensible chancellor and sensible parliament and people trusted them all, you wouldn't need a rule. You'd just behave sensibly. But I don't think anyone particularly trusts everybody in this game that is being played. The Chancellor, and this is Gordon Brown was the first one really to, more 25 years ago now, introduce fiscal rules. I think they're there for two reasons. One is to give a sense of a framework to the population and to the markets. This is what we're trying to achieve. Mm. We're being cautious. We're being sensible. We're not spending more than we should. At least as important is that the Chancellor wants to have a bulwark against his colleagues. So if he says, here is my rule, and if you want to spend all this extra money, it's going to break the rule, and we can't do that because here's my rule. So I think it provides both reassurance externally and a, a stick with which the Chancellor can beat his colleagues when they come asking for money. But I mean, key to this are the forecasts, aren't they? And can we trust those forecasts? Because you said basically, where is debt forecast to be? Yeah, this set of rules is all based on forecasts. And there's two aspects to your question. Can you trust the forecast? One is... This is based on the office budget responsibilities forecast of what's going to happen to the economy, what's going to happen to inflation, what's going to happen to interest rates, and all those sorts of things going forward. And inevitably, they'll be wrong. I mean, that's not a criticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's uh, uh, but forecasts are always wrong, but they are the best effort that we can get at what the economy will look like. So there's uncertainty around that. The second element here is that 
It depends on what happens to the economy, but it obviously also depends on what happens to government policy. And that's where it gets really difficult, because the OBR has to take as given what the government tells it its policy is. And this time round, the government has told it our policy is, for example, to increase fuel duties this year in line with inflation. Now, that hasn't actually happened for 15 years, and it probably won't happen, assuming this government Mm. carries on. But the OBR has to take that and put it in its forecast, because the government has told it that's what its policy is. Even more important this time round, the government is also saying... Here are, and very high level, our spending plans. And our spending plans and increase public service spending by a bit less than 1% a year over the next five years, without saying anything about how that's going to be allocated. Now, taking really quite conservative assumptions about the minimum that you can expect to give to the health service, and knowing what our policies on defence and childcare and various other things are, that doesn't sound too bad, just under 1% a year growth over the next five years, actually turns into cuts in other things, because there's no way the health service is going to only grow by 1% a year. There's no way that defence is only going to grow 1% a year. We know that the Chancellor's um, you know, allocated $5 billion or so to childcare and so on. Once you take account of all of that, what he's actually saying is, I'm going to implement something like $20 billion worth of cuts in other things by the end of the decade, without telling anyone where that's going to be. Mm. So... Again, the OBR has to take that because the government's told them to take that. So that's part of their forecast. But it's not, I don't think it's a central assumption about what will actually happen. So there's really two problems with the way the OBR is forced to approach this at the moment. One is that they don't acknowledge the degree of uncertainty that you would have you know, over a five-year period that actually you're talking about how much headroom is there going to be for the Chancellor with a unrealistic degree of supposed specificity when actually mm. over five years it's completely unlikely you'll be mm-hmm. actually close. Because we might have a war or a pandemic or God knows what. Exactly. Sort of and also th- this point... Or the economy might just grow by a tiny fraction different to their central yeah. assumption. And, and then secondly, that the articulation, as you say, of what some of the spending assumptions which mm. are built into this isn't there. So there's no sense in which the impact on unprotected departments is kind of brought through into a sort of debate in a way which could really allow people to say, are you seriously going to cut the civil service workforce by X or or whatever Mm. it is? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the economic uncertainty is inevitable. And the problem the government has made for itself is it is running itself so close to the fiscal rules that any tiny change in the OBR's judgment can make a difference between whether formally the fiscal rules are being met or not. And that, you know, that's government's fault. First, it's made a silly fiscal rule. And secondly, it's running very close to that fiscal rule. The second point, which is about government just setting the rules by saying, you know, this is what our spending is going to be. I mean, Richard Hughes, who is the chairman of the Office of Budget Responsibility, was, I thought, remarkably rude about that in front of Parliament a couple of weeks ago, when he talked about the government spending plans being not even as good as fiction, because as he put it, at least writers of fiction write it down, and the government hasn't even bothered to do that. They've just given us a number, which I thought was remarkably bold for the, for the head of the OBR. But am I right in saying he can say that in front of a select committee, but they can't factor that into their forecast? So you can't say, well, that's a bit of a Pinocchio pledge, so we're not going to take that seriously, because <laughs> no one can deliver that politically. So am I right in saying that the forecasts don't reflect that level of scepticism that he expressed in Parliament? I love that. I'll use that, the Pinocchio pledge. But, <laughs> <laughs> but they do. I mean, and that's part of the way in which you keep the OBR out of politics, though, isn't it? This is part of the function of having fiscal rules, although different countries, I think I'm right in saying, Paul, do this slightly differently. But that if you say 
these are the rules and you have to judge stated government policy against these rules, you avoid what is supposed to yeah. be an independent institution getting into what might be seen as more qualitative political judgments about the realism or otherwise of mm. those pledges. Although you don't have to read very much between the lines of the official OBR report to see very clearly that they're very sceptical about this. I mean, they've made this particularly clear about things like fuel duty. Yeah. I mean, in, in absolutely clear terms. They've also said the same about the spending pledges. But if you look at the tables and the numbers and the charts, they're based on the central forecasts, which are based on state of government policy. And that's in the end what makes the headlines. And that in the end is what the Chancellor sees as constraining it. I mean, I ought to declare an interest here, Anand, because the IFG is actually doing a report on fiscal rules, which will be coming out <laughs> shortly. Ooh, well, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll be a keen consumer. <laughs> <laughs> which we have, I've been carefully briefed on, so I shall do my best to do justice to. But I mean, I think it very much is in line with what Paul's been saying. The idea behind having fiscal rules, which, as I say, other countries do as well, is a good idea. The current fiscal rules that we have and the way in which they're operating is actually having some really counterproductive adverse effects on mm -hmm. policymaking and how that works. And so there does need to be some reform of, of our fiscal rules. And that might be something that the next government coming in needs to think quite carefully mm -hmm. about because it drives all sorts of things, the sorts of things that, that Paul's been talking about. Short-termism, because some of the policies that you might formulate, which would pay off in the long term, are actually then quite easy to cuts because if you're looking to reduce the deficit, mm -hmm. then you do that in the short term because you're not going to see the yeah. benefit sort of politically in the longer term. You can end up doing quite arbitrary things to bits of policy because it helps you meet a fiscal rule, which actually makes a policy that was going to be quite good and quite good value for money, less good value for money because you just fiddle with it in such a way yeah. that it helps you meet this arbitrary rule <laughs> rather than deliver it in the way it was originally intended. And I think that it all comes back to the point you you made at the start about why actually having fewer fiscal events is helpful because you have to think about these things and the tinkering and as Paul was describing it, the sort of trying to be right up against the limits of your fiscal rule but not quite reaching them happens less frequently. So you're really approaching the policy making process in a slightly more considered way than having every six months to think about you know what you're going to do, what you're going to change, and how that's going to fit against mm. these slightly arbitrary in a way fiscal rules particularly bizarre given the way that the government games its own fiscal rules i mean we've done some work which shows that each time the public finances look a bit better chance says oh well spend all that extra money and each time they look worse they say oh well you know maybe we'll just kind of live with it looking a bit worse and they kick their fiscal rule another year down the road and so that ratchets up debt in any case and of course, with an election on the horizon, all the talk is not of fiscal consolidation, but of tax cuts. It is indeed. I suspect I know what you think about this, Paul. I'm going to ask you anyway, is there scope for tax cuts? And if so, which ones? <laughs> it's important to be clear that even if there are tax cuts in the budget, this will still have been a very, very big tax increasing parliament. I mean, we've had some very big tax rises over this parliament and some more big tax rises are due over the next two or three years have been announced by the Chancellor. So um, even if there are some tax cuts, it's really important to be clear that net, this has been a big tax increasing parliament. If you take the sort of fiscal context, the fiscal rules, the fiscal objective seriously, then no, there isn't room for there, there isn't room for tax cuts because we're only, as I said, barely meeting those fiscal targets, and then only because the Chancellor's penciling in some pretty stiff spending cuts over the medium run. So, uh, if he wants to make some tax cuts, I think he really does then need to say, and this is where I intend to cut spending in order to fund them. 
I suppose one of the problems with this conversation is we are coming quite close to saying it's such a shame that governments have to get re-elected. Isn't it? And wouldn't policy be better if we didn't have these sort of short-term electoral incentives, which, you know, we... And we really do have these short-term incentives. You can see over long periods of time that budgets are just before elections, much more to have tax cuts. Budgets just after elections, particularly when you get a new government, boy, do you get big tax increases. Yeah. And to be fair, though I hate to do this for a rival think tank, the Resolution Foundation had an interesting report with a graph of how taxes go up straight after elections. They nicked that from us. We've done that before. <laughs> okay, well, you heard it here first. <laughs> Sorry, Torsten. <laughs> and, you know, we sit here a lot and say, oh, my God, if only politicians were more honest, were more straight with us, we'd get better public policy. I mean, is that something reasonably we, we should expect, say, of Rachel Reeves, that she has an opportunity now to come out and say, look, folks, we've been through some tough times. This is the fiscal situation. Let's be honest about this, or is that just a sort of pipe dream? Well, I guess there's sort of before and after the election question there. Yeah. I mean, what will really irritate me is if she does what lots of new chancellors say is, oh, look, we've opened the books, and now we've seen that we need to do a whole set of things we didn't put in our manifesto. Well, the books are open. I mean, there is nothing that seriously she doesn't know or that we don't know. So, you know, there is no excuse for saying something different the day after the election from the day before, at least from that point of view. There obviously is a, might be political or electoral reasons for doing that. Post-election, I think and my guess is that the politics of it are going to depend a lot on, you know, is this a big Labour majority with a, mm. you know, where they're really thinking about the long run, or is this a narrow Labour majority where they're really worried about the next election mm. already? I think in that first instance, then there's much more likelihood of taking some difficult decisions, which might irritate people in a world with a narrow majority or where they're really worried about the next election. I think that's rather less likely. So I have to say, the last time we had a newly elected Labour government, they had a whopping great majority and they were did. panicky about the next election they, straight away. They, so they were. I mean, you know, and as, as you know, I mean, it's, uh, if you read the memoirs of the time, yeah. certainly Tony Blair particularly regrets that. And I am assuming that the current lot have read those previous memoirs. As you say, and it's very easy for us to sort of call for more truth in politics. And, you know, maybe it is completely unrealistic to expect any party to go into an election saying we're going to raise taxes. But there is a pretty clear choice here that the country is facing about, you know, tax cuts versus more investment in public services. I mean, there's not a lot of money to go around either way, but the money that Jeremy Hunt might be going to spend on tax cuts at the budget could otherwise be invested in public services. and. The polling shows that actually the British public are more keen on having better public services than they are on tax cuts. So but that's a- the problem, isn't it? The public want better public services. They don't necessarily want the. They're not necessarily going to vote for the investment in those public services. So they, you know, they want the outcome, but they don't necessarily want the difficult decisions that will lead to those outcomes. And there's the problem, isn't it? But I think you know the polling shows they're willing to forego tax cuts in order Mm. to have that greater, you know, to be more likely to get your GP appointment or whatever it is. So it is a genuine political divide if the Tories are going to say we're going to cut taxes. Now, actually, what Labour has been doing so far is just mirroring whatever the government's policy is on these things and Mm. saying, no, we wouldn't necessarily undo it because they're so keen not to get a cigarette paper between them ahead of the election. I don't think it's just a sort of technocrat's dream to say we should all be open and honest and exactly set out for years ahead what our strategy is and what the implications will be for spending and so on. It's actually also, it's just that's the political debate that we ought to be having. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because as long as I can remember, Labour have, to use that Americanism, played defence on the economy. 
They've always been very keen to stress competence, to stress, you know, we're sticking by that. And, and part of me thinks rather depressingly, you know, if they can't actually diverge now following the mini budget and following what's happened to the Conservatives' reputation for sound stewardship of the economy, if at this moment Labour don't have the courage to say, actually, you know what, they've done it wrong, we're going to do it differently, then it's never going to happen, is it? Yeah, well, it's, uh, I mean, of course, the economy is more than the fiscal bit and, yeah. the, and, and, and the taxes and spending. And they, I mean, they have made pledges around workers' rights and mm-hmm. around regulations and around planning and so on, which are big economic policies, yeah. which are different. But I think where they're clearly very nervous is on this tax and spending thing. Mm. And I mean, actually, they've been stung over the years by looking at the polling and then looking at people's the way that people actually vote, which does seem to indicate that people don't like the idea of certainly taxes that they think might hit them. It's very easy to be in favour of increased taxes if you think someone Mm. else is going to pay them. And it's also very easy just not to have a clear sense of scale. If you want to make a significant difference across all these public services, given that actually there's 20 billion, we reckon, of cuts in the pipeline, that's a lot of money and a lot of taxes. But equally, I can fully understand why Jeremy Hunt might be reluctant to say, forego tax cuts to invest more in the NHS so that Labour in power can take credit for shorter waiting lists. I mean, There's clearly a political game going on here. and um, There's nothing that is said in this budget which will genuinely commit a future government, whether it's Conservative or Labour, to the kinds of spending numbers that are very in very light pencil, penciled in. Yeah, but of course, yeah. because, I mean, this is the kind of silly game, that because these are the numbers penciled in, that becomes the baseline against which everything is measured. So we had a national insurance cut just earlier this year in January, which didn't exist in November before the autumn statement. That's the new baseline. Labour has accepted that as the new baseline. Mm. And that's £10 billion less money to spend because they've accepted that. So before we go any further, Paul, and what you say now will be clipped and shared widely on social media on Budget Day, what is the rabbit the government will pull out of the hat? Because they always do. We want people to have heard it here first. Well, that's the problem with rabbits in hats. You can't see them until they come out. uh, If I knew that, then it wouldn't be a rabbit, would it? It's one of those um, uh, fundamental... um, I'm obviously not going to let you get away with this. (laughs) There's a whole series of things that he might do. I mean, one is that he might say... Look, everyone's saying I'm going to be freezing income tax allowances in, in, in April. That's a huge tax rise. Actually, I'm not going to. Now, I don't think he'll do that, even though that will be a sort of progressive thing to do, and that would undo one of the very big tax increases, because I'm not sure he thinks he'd get a lot of political benefit from doing that. Mm-hmm. But he could do that. He could say, oh, well, you know, everyone's been saying there's no room for tax cuts, but here's a penny off the main rate of income tax, or here's, uh, here's another penny off national insurance rate. I mean, those are the obvious kind of retail political tax cuts that are available. At the moment, once you earn £50,000, you start to lose your child benefit. People have talked about moving away from that. So there's all sorts of these tax changes that he could decide to make. I mean, before the autumn statement, there was lots of speculation about inheritance tax. I've not heard anything about that this time. I think that's probably, again, a political judgment. I think Labour would say, well, any cut inheritance tax, we will reinstate. So that in this kind of mad world then gives them money to spend. So I think for political reasons, he might not do that. But there might be a very different coloured rabbit in there. Who knows? Just think, if any of those things happen, you can claim credit and impact. That would be fantastic. Well, I'm not sure I'd want to claim either credit or impact, actually. <laughs> and while we're doing predictions, Hannah, oh, no. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. Is this the last fiscal event before the election? Oh, God. 
<laughs> well, we're told maybe not, which, I mean, in terms of, of what Paul's saying about things that won't actually have any effect, I mean, potentially electorally, of course, but if you end up having another fiscal event in the summer or in the autumn, anything that's that's promised at that stage is basically just a manifesto promise because there won't be time for it to actually be given effect to before an election happens. So... Yes, there could be further tinkering. It would be a purely political thing to do, but that's what we get in election years. We get purely political moves. What do you reckon about the timing of the next fiscal event after the election? If we have a sort of early November election where we get an emergency budget in December, God help us. I, mean, I think that tends to be the pattern, doesn't it? Does, it? Yes. Uh, that incoming <laughs> governments, and you know, there were things that, that, that Labour had said it oh. would do, like. So there could uh, be two more fiscal events this year after this budget. Well, if you take a week off before every fiscal <laughs> event, Paul, you're in for loads of holidays this year. <laughs> Yeah, we're all really depressing ourselves <laughs> at this point. <laughs> and I mean, it is very difficult to talk about the current economic state of the country without getting a little bit depressed. <laughs> Although if you want to feel better about it, if you listen to the rest is history on the 1970s, and particularly 1974, it actually was worse then. So if you want to feel better oh, about today... Then that's a good thing to listen to. They're a recent series of podcasts. Well, let, let's do this another way. Let's set Johnson a test. If I were to give you one minute to tell us a positive narrative about our economy going forward, could you do it? Oh, God. I'd struggle with more than about one second. Um, <laughs> Bloody Eeyore in the corner here. <laughs> Look, it could be worse, couldn't it? I mean, God. <laughs> The economy is stagnant. It's not, yeah. it's not actually on its way down in any any really serious way. Inequality, actually, despite what a lot of people think, inequalities of incomes, if anything, have fallen over the last wealth? few years. Well, wealth is a slightly different thing, but in terms of income, you want to be positive. Sorry. You immediately <laughs> sorry, 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 interrupt sorry. with the negative. <laughs> um, Keep going. <laughs> I do think, actually, that it's a good thing that we've moved to a somewhat higher interest rate environment. I think having zero interest rates, as we had right through the 2010s, was quite distortive of the economy and mm. bad for growth. So I think actually having new interest rates at, say, 3 or 4% over the next few years, which I suspect is where they might end up, is, is it will be helpful for the economy. I think we're on top of inflation. I think that's probably mm-hmm. not going to return in any, really, in any really serious way. I think we've got over the sort of shock of Brexit and the political mm-hmm. chaos that went with it and, and, and the, the sort of hit to the economy there. I mean, it will be long lasting, but I think we've probably got over that Shock, and I suppose the other thing is that certainly parts of the economy have proved pretty resilient to some of that. Some parts of the services economy have done better in terms of trade than we might have expected. There are some parts of the tech economy that are doing quite well. I'm really trying to be positive. No, you're doing very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> Who are you? What have you done with Paul Johnson? <laughs> but you know that is all in the context of you know the Bank of England forecasts oh, are really. Really, you know, for very little growth over the next few years, the OBR is a little bit more optimistic. But the, the last thing I'd say is economists are hopeless. Just leave it there. Hopeless. Just leave it there. Economists are hopeless at forecasting turning points. So we've had 16 years of, of really poor growth, poor productivity growth, poor earnings growth. At some point, that's probably going to stop, and we're not going to forecast the moment at which it stops. Maybe the next government gets really lucky. And actually, things start to to do much better. And don't we? We didn't forecast when inflation was going to change. Lots of people were basing all of their investment strategies and so on and interest rates staying zero forever. These things have changed, and they change suddenly. It's just possible that growth will do that. It's not a forecast, but it, it's going to happen someday. And we're not the only European economy struggling to figure out how to get growth, are we? 
We're not. I mean, what's very striking comparing us with the with, with other Europe economies is that they all slowed down after the financial crisis. Mm. I mean, and it's important to be clear to date this at the financial crisis, not the 2010 election. So the poor performance since 2010 is much more to do with these fundamentals following the financial crisis mm. than to do with the change of government. But we've slowed down a lot more than other countries, partly because actually, and, and it's very interesting looking back at the history here, we were doing really well for you know 20 years or so yeah. up to the financial crisis. So actually doing better than most of the rest of Europe. We've slowed down much more dramatically. So we're now doing somewhat worse than the rest of Europe. And that, that's that's the big change there. Interesting. And Hannah, I mean, obviously, the Institute of Government works on how to improve government, but ultimately, is government simply at the mercy of economic events, that actually government works well when the economy is doing well, and when things are tight, and when politics is a bit zero-sum, then government gets a bit messy? I mean, I think there's definitely something in that. It's much easier to come into government, to be in government, if you've got cash to splash, and what you can do in terms of propositional policy is radically different mm. in an environment you know, as we had say in 97 as compared to where we are now and it also has a, an effect I think on, on policy debate because when there just isn't that fiscal room to, to decide that you're going to put your priority here or you're going to put your priority there it's quite difficult to differentiate between the parties because most of what they're doing is structural and, and anything that might be termed sort of serious public service reform for example is just going to cost money so I do think that to a large extent, any incoming prime minister, what they are able to achieve and how they are able to go about it is largely determined by what the economy is doing. And you know, I think if the conclusion listening to Paul over the last half hour is politicians can tinker around the edges. They can do really stupid things which affect the economy. They can do some things which marginally improve it and they can have big economic policies which over the long term could make a big difference. But then there are just big other factors like wars, like <coughs> pandemics, like stuff, you know, stuff, global trends, which of mm. course they can't have any control over. I think that last point about the timescale is so important. I mean, I actually believe that governments can have an impact on the economy, but over the long term, and that's where it struggles against the electoral cycle. So if we start reforming education, reforming the tax system, reforming investigative infrastructure, reforming planning, all of those sorts of things, then over a 10-year time horizon, that probably will get growth growing a bit more, eight, nine, 10 years hence. What you can't do in a sustainable way is make a big difference to growth in the next one or two years. But of course, you know, lucky if politicians have a time horizon of one or two weeks, one or two years looks like a long time, but actually we're looking at, you know, eight, nine, 10 years. And that's where I really hope that the next government is thinking in that long-term kind of perspective because it's over that kind of period that you can make a difference. Easier said than done, I fear. But anyway, what an episode that was. Paul's told you what's going to be in the budget. <laughs> Paul and Hannah have both told you we shouldn't be having this bloody budget anyway. What other podcast do you need? And on that note, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. <laughs>